Before we get into the show, a note that this episode contains some sensitive subjects. There will be a discussion of substance use, substance use disorders, and other mental health issues. Please take care while listening. I'm Dr. Noisy Ndukwe. And I'm Dr. Danielle Hairston. This is The Next 72 Hours. I think I know what you might say, but let me just throw this question out here for you. Um, Is substance use a medical issue or a criminal issue? So what I want to say is it all depends on who the issue, who it all depends on who has the issue. Tell me more about that. I mean, across the board, we know that substance use, substance use is a, um, medical it's not criminal uh but it, it all depends on what neighborhood you're in if you're in santa monica it's medical if you're in south la it's criminal so let me ask you this when you say medical issue what do you mean medical like mental health like a physical and mental issue that should be managed by physicians and healthcare workers or you do you think it's something that should be managed in the court system no, I think it should be a it's a medical issue, most definitely. The cri- the crimes come after the use. You know what I'm saying? The the infractions come after the use. You know, um, you can only suppress trauma and feelings and emotions for so long before they erupt. That's what makes addicts addicts. Um, and we think it's just the drugs because until now no one ever had a conversation about mental health. My name is Jack Brown, and I'm the CEO and founder of Peter Care Whole My name is Susan Burton. I'm founder and president of the New Way of Life Reentry Project located in Los Angeles, California. On this episode of the next 72 hours, we will discuss the treatment and sentencing disparities between crack and powder cocaine and the opioid epidemic. The war on drugs is a calculated, racist, political tool. Crack didn't just appear in Black neighborhoods and communities. It came from somewhere. As you might have noticed, the face of the quote-unquote addict in this country is very different. This is a pretty big issue, so we've decided to split it up into two parts. This is the first part, which is our conversations with Jack and Susan. So first, can you tell us about where you grew up and what your childhood was like? (laughs) Um, I grew up in the hood in South Dallas, um, close to the State Fair of Texas for anyone that has ever been there. Um, But my neighborhood was more kind of, I guess you would say, um, if there's a such thing, middle class, poor black people. Like we we had a few things and the utilities were paid on a, a consistent basis and People had manicured yards and things of that nature. Um, I also went to private school, so I got a, a fairly decent education. But you know what they say about private school kids? They're just as bad as preacher kids. So I ended up <laughs> making a wrong turn somewhere in life. I grew up in a housing project in East Los Angeles. Um, my mother and father was a part of the Great Migration 
and they left uh, the South. They left Texas looking for a better life uh, and landed in, uh, or, or I will say was directed to a housing project that had been created uh, just for the migration of folks from the South, fleeing slavery, fleeing Jim Crow, fleeing the, the, the harsh reality of Southern life. I could walk from my house to the corner and see a prostitute or a pimp on the corner, right? In less than a block radius. Um, but at the same time, uh, being middle class, middle class poor, um, you know, I wasn't allowed to hang out on the streets very much or go up on the block very often. Um, and it was frowned upon. It was like, hey, don't be like these people and, and this, that and the other. But at the same time, um, and I've never told anybody this. Um, my uncle was a hustler. He was a street hustler and he went out and he did his thing every night. You know, he'd leave at five in the evening and I might not see him till seven o'clock that next morning. Um, being a child, I didn't know exactly what that, that hustle, um, was, but he was like a gambler, I guess we'll say for the most part, you know, hung out in Jew joints, things of that nature. But he always came home and he pushed the issue about me um, being educated and not having to be like him. You know, both my parents were in the home for um, a while uh, until the until I was about age seven uh, and the uh, deindustrialization hit our communities uh, and affected the ability for uh, for work. Uh, especially for black people. Uh, my father got laid off uh, and there began to be, um, you know, just these problems in our household. Was mental health something that was discussed in your family and or community? Did they ever talk about mental health issues or seeking care? Oh, never. No one, I mean, no one ever, I mean, mental health came later on in life. Um, if If we... If in passing a conversation was stated about someone uh, having mental health challenges, it was pretty much they were crazy and they were sent to the state hospital. That was as far as the discussion would go about mental health, like the person is crazy. So your your blog mentions a lack of access to mental health and health care and information. What was your understanding of what mental health care was before you found the language to fully discuss your own mental health? Um, okay. As a kid, I was, I was, um, I was kind of bad is what I'll say. Um, I was mischievous. That's a better word. And so, um, I was, it was suggested that my aunt take me to counseling. And so once a week I went to counseling, um, um, through the Catholic church, of course. And, you know, we, I would have these sessions with these individuals and no one ever like explained to me that this was dealing with my mental health. To my understanding, uh, I felt like I was just only going for uh, my negative behaviors, right? Me acting out. No one said anything about like, hey, you might have some abandonment issues or you might have some trauma for uh, the absence of your mother and your father or anything like that. You know, they were just like, hey, you're going to go here once a week and we're going to talk about home life and what you could do different. So I was receiving therapy 
for mental health challenges and never even knew I was receiving therapy. Coming from where my mom and dad came from, you know, there was no real, uh, 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 it wasn't allowed to be mentally ill or to, or to, or to, or to discuss depression. Uh, and you have to get depressed when you are uh, oppressed to the level that there was. So to talk about mental health, to talk about depression, to talk about grief, to talk about uh, 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 being up and excited and then down low. Uh, you just you just didn't think about that. You just dealt with it. Uh, you didn't discuss it. You didn't see it as abnormal. You saw it as part of the culture and part of the environment and part of what you had to deal with. So Danny, I find this interesting um, why do you think that there's been such a hesitancy to discuss mental health in the Black community? I know that for me personally, mental health was not something that was really discussed at home. Yeah, I'm happy that we're going to take a pause right here to discuss this because it's something that I'm, I'm asked frequently and I have to say it's a lot. Like, it's multifactorial. There are a lot of reasons. The first reason that we cannot forget is this has been used as a means of survival, when we go back 400 years for our ancestors and people who are part of the diaspora who were enslaved, they did not have the freedom to express their feelings. If you expressed your feelings, if you even said you were tired, that could result in death. That can result in beatings and trauma. It could result in your children be being taken away. All types of things could have happened. So it was really a means of survival. You don't express yourself. You keep it in. And that is just how you are able to move throughout life. Now, that's something that for generations is being passed on. You don't express these things in the streets. You don't tell others what's happening in your family because that is the way that people have had to survive for years and years and years. And it's been passed down. That's all a partner in this generational trauma that we see. Also, a lot of times, healthcare, including mental health care, has been a privilege. We don't have the privilege. We don't have the luxury of getting to talk about this. How are you going to talk about your anxiety or your depression when you need to be figuring out how to feed your children? You're responsible for paying the rent. You, you literally don't have time for this. So I think a lot of times it's been seen as something that's for white people, it's for people who are affluent and people who have the luxury of seeing a therapist or seeing a psychiatrist. Those are just two things, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot, Malaysia. And I think also too, because of how pervasive and how universal it has been, this idea of black people just caring for themselves and not having the space or the privilege to talk about mental health I think that's a big part of why religion has played such a big role in what is healing. Um, I often find that when I talk to a lot of Black people about mental health, they're often told, pray it away, go to church. And I'd have to say, for my family being a Black West African, that was something that was also seen and, and was also used to go to church and pray. Um, and I think that's one of the things that a lot of black people had to resort to because their real lived in system did not accommodate for them. Right. And we see that across the diaspora, across 
different black experiences. That was something that's seen in your family, a West African family, the same thing seen in my family, a um, black American family, where if you're not right, that's why you're having a mental health issue. There's a lot of guilt and a lot of shame associated with it. Listen, you can pray and take your medication once you hit it with two angles. And that's always the advice that I give people who are here like, well, am I supposed to go to church or am I supposed to see a psychiatrist? Why don't you do both? Tackle it on all angles if you would like, but don't say either or and don't associate it with shame and guilt and as if something's wrong or as a sin to have these mental health issues. So I think it's also important that we note like the family dynamics and um, reputation that people don't want to be with someone, particularly in like West African, um, West Indian families. If you hear that someone has a mental health issue, you don't know if their children are going to have it. You don't know, you want to, don't want to get involved with them. So that's a very big thing. I think a lot of shame and guilt associated with it. But when we come back to this, where do I think the root is in white supremacy and the colonizers? So do you think that the lack of access to education about mental health connects with substance use or can even lead to it? Definitely. I think that a lot of times we hear the term quote unquote self-medicated, which I don't like um, because I think it perpetuates uh, an idea that substance use or alcohol um, treats or medicates your mental health issue instead of it actually worsening and making things worse for your experience. So I think that a lot of times you have seen others drink away their depression or drink to get through an anxious situation. And when you don't have the education and the access to healthcare professionals and the access to mental health professionals, be they psychologists or counselors or whoever, you're just going along with what you've seen for all these years in your family, your friends, and your neighborhoods and communities. And I think that's a good point because basically what you're addressing is the idea that the trauma escalates and continues and compounds, right? You get that trauma when you're raised initially about how mental health isn't something that Black people deal with. And then you translate it into how you take care of yourself, which means that you don't think you deserve mental health care access and even your children, you know? So I think it's a really important point that the trauma doesn't just start, you know, with one person. No, definitely. Generational trauma is real. Growing up, what was the culture around drugs and what were your views on drug use then when you were growing up? Well, I mean, to be honest, even though I seen it on the corner, I was I was pretty much sheltered, right? Um, to a certain degree is what I'll say. Um, I never actually physically seen any drugs or any transactions. Even if I'd seen a transaction, I probably didn't know what it was. Um, so the the whole drug scene came later on in life. Like for me, <laughs> my biggest goal in life was to get out of the house. Like I said, I had overprotective parents. And so I, I had to play sports. I had to join the band. I had to uh, participate in after school programs just so I wouldn't be at home. There was a there was a no nonsense to drug use, but there was a lot of alcohol abuse and alcohol use, which now I understand alcohol to be a drug too. Uh, in my because I'm 23 years sober, uh, so you know alcohol. Um, uh, 
and drugs, uh, uh, alcohol was acceptable and something that was used on the weekend, uh, used heavily on the weekend. But uh, there was uh, this taboo around drug use. And I think that uh, the taboo was connected with heroin. So what was your first exposure to drug use or substance use? My first encounter with with any form of drug was um, marijuana. There was marijuana, and then there there was a prescription medication. And I I, I stole it out of my mom's stash. It was out of her her stash. She had marijuana. Now, think about this. You're a kid, you're growing up, and your parents are saying, just say no to drugs. And at the same time, behind closed doors, they're indulging in drugs. So it was more do as I say, not as I do. And so um, I was trying to fit into the in crowd at school, you know, and so I I, I stole my first joint and a bottle of whiskey from her wet bar and out of her stash. You know, my mother and father was very, very uh, rigid and strict about um, about uh, drug use. Um, and there was this knowing about being a junkie, uh, they would call it, uh, back in those days. Um, uh, but I know, I know that people use different methods of coping with situations and circumstances, even mental health. Uh, and so I just think that there just needs to be a, a broader view about who people are and see people as people. I know you said when you were younger at the age of 14 and in high school, the impetus to use was kind of based on cool points and being with the cool kids. When, you know, that shifted at the age of 22 and you were using more regularly, what do you think was the reason that you were using then? Um, Grief, to be honest with you. So, um, so my aunt that raised me died when I was 18. My uncle that raised me died when I was 22. Um, and I was a spoiled brat, sheltered, and introduced to the cold, cool world at, at, at a very rapid pace. You know, I, I had boyfriends that had given it to me. Uh, maybe some me and a girlfriend had partied and we had experimented and what have you. But uh, my son was killed uh, by a LAPD detective. He was five years old. Um, His name was KK. And um, one minute he was there and the next minute he was gone. And after all I had been through and all I I had experienced, I just could not cope with any more pain, grief, and loss. I started using just to numb the feelings of the thoughts. Like I, you know, I had a, a very short military career. You know, I went in at 18 and I was home by 20. Um, my, you know, I got kicked out of school my senior year, uh, my the second semester of my senior year, so I didn't graduate. Uh, never accomplished that goal of, of hanging out with the cool kids. So, you know, dreams just crushed. And then the only people that ever took care of me, or only, the only people that actually ever loved me 
uh, which I didn't understand because love wasn't communicated in, in the household, um, they were gone. And I, were, I was mad. I felt like they left me. I didn't, I didn't look at the fact that they passed away. I felt like they left me. And so you add all of that and put it on top of someone that doesn't know that they are suffering from some type of trauma, possibly from, from your adolescent years. Um, I just started getting high. I mean, like I, <laughs> I started drinking Boom's Farm Strawberry Hill with 7% alcohol and graduated to malt liquor. Um, started smoking marijuana and put the marijuana aside and started smoking PCP because no matter what substance I use, those, those, um, those bouts with grief and trauma and abandonment would always resurface and no one had ever, one, I didn't know how to identify it and two, no one told me what to do about it. And so I self-medicated my way through it. Um, I drank to drown my grief. I understand that now. I drank to drown the pain and disappointment of all of my life and what it had led up to that moment. And it escalated to drug use. And for that, I was imprisoned. Um, I know that there could have been and there should have been something different. But there was nothing different. There was um, the availability of like alcohol and then drugs in my community, and it helped me to have that moment of silence and dull the pain and the loss. Um, I'm sorry to hear about your son. I understand from what I read um, about in your book and your website was that he was struck in a car accident. I didn't realize that it was by the police. It's 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 a piece of a it's a piece of a of a, a fact that people don't want to talk talk about and look at. So a lot of times it's left out, uh, and it, it it confronts people's idea of who the police are and who the police are not. Although now we've gotten more clear uh, with the past events over the last years. Uh, and it's not as shocking as it was, um, but people didn't want to hear that part. And what age were you when you started to use crack cocaine after the death of your son? I was about 32. Um, and that was when it was literally flooded into our community, like pharmaceutical companies, you know, these, um, it, it it was everywhere. It was like it was like night and day, and um, the use of that brought the night into our community that lingered and lived and shadowed over the entire community. So when I started, I was twenty two when I started consistently using uh, multiple substances, and um, I didn't start thinking about stop using until I was 38. And that was just a thought like, hey, I might need to stop because I keep going to jail. <laughs> um, I might need to stop because um, my, my life, I felt like a hamster on a treadmill. My life was just, I get out, I go back to jail. I get out, I go back to jail. I get out, go to the neighborhood, go to jail. Get out, go to the neighborhood, go to jail. And so, um, 
around 40, I decided to, to like get help. I was incarcerated for um, possession of illegal substances, which was cocaine. And then it, 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 it transformed to crack. Um, and the illegal substances uh, took me back and forth to prison. Uh, and there could have been, and there should have been uh, an investment in help for me and an investment in help for many other people uh, in our community, many other black women who were criminalized um, because of uh, uh, drug use. With the incarceration, you mentioned, you know, with cocaine first and then crack cocaine. Did you find that the ramifications and the um, legal, um, you know, the, the whatever legal um, punishments that they put in place, did you find that it was different for cocaine versus crack cocaine? Most definitely. And we, I mean, we've had these big discussions in Congress. Uh, about, you know, the difference in powder cocaine versus rock um, and, you know, and the, the, the sentencing disparities uh, that, that happened as a result of, um, I mean, it's not rocket science. What's happened or what they do to uh, uh, folks, it's not rocket science that um, uh, they... Um, uh, choke a man like George Floyd out, but these other folks can storm our Capitol and literally kill policemen and not even uh, have so much as uh, a paddy wagon uh, uh, to put them in sitting outside of our Capitol. You know, it's not rocket science. These are Black people and those are white people. So what we know is it doesn't have to be this way. And we know this because we have seen the opioid epidemic and crisis handled in a much more humane way. So stay tuned for the next episode or the next part of this episode where we will hear about this gentler approach, a more medical approach, a less carceral approach to substance use disorders. We'll hear about Jack and Susan's recovery and what it will take to stop this cycle of disparate treatment of Black people if it's even possible. The Next 72 Hours is hosted by Dr. Danny Hairston and Dr. Nwazi Ndukwe. Executive producer is me, Danny Hairston. Senior producer is Susan Yakundi. Producer is Karina Giamarese. Do you know some cases we need to investigate, things we need to look into, things we really need to dig into? Email us at 72hourspod at gmail.com. Thanks again. See you next time. See you next time.